Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. In December last year, President Biden hosted a two-day summit for democracy, which brought together hundreds of leaders from governments, civil society organizations, and the private sector in a virtual setting. The summit was branded as an opportunity for over 100 countries to join the United States in reaffirming their commitment to democratic principles while finding solutions to defend against a global resurgence of authoritarianism, fighting corruption, and advancing respect for human rights. The Biden administration has made certain pledges, including committing $424 million in a presidential initiative to support independent news media overseas, combat corruption, and activists, advance technology, and defend fair elections. I'm not sure why it's 424 as opposed to 425. They could have rounded it up, but... But what do I know? I'm going with the precise number of 424. The U.S. will also address the issue of digital authoritarianism via multilateral export controls of technologies. Today's episode will unpack the outcomes of the summit, the agenda ahead of us in the so-called year of action, and how digital connectivity can better serve democracy and freedom. In this regard, digital tools can enable more democratic and inclusive societies or be misused to strengthen authoritarianism or fraudulent transactions. CSIS has been at the forefront of analyzing how the use of digital technology can improve socioeconomic development and humanitarian results. Joining us for this conversation are two distinguished experts and thought leaders who have spent a lot of time thinking about and working on these issues. We have Agnieszka Rawa, who is the managing director of the for Data Collaboratives, for Local Impact at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the MCC, where she oversees a multi-million dollar interagency effort to use data to solve some of the most pressing global development challenges. And then we have my colleague and friend, Ms. Marty Flax, who is holds the Kozravi Chair in Principled Internationalism. She's also a senior fellow and directs CSIS's Human Rights Initiative, where she seeks to bring innovative thinking and a multidisciplinary approach to tackle pressing global human rights challenges and better integrate human rights across foreign policy priorities. Agnieszka and Marty, I'm so pleased you're both available for this. Let me start with both of you and just ask, we had the summit. How would you characterize what happened at the summit? Marty, let me start with you. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here for this important conversation. So I think the summit is important for a couple of reasons. One is sort of the symbolic value of the convening that took place. There was a lot of concern hand-wringing in advance of the summit about whether the United States was the right actor to convene this group on this topic at this time, whether doing it in a virtual format in the end of a very difficult COVID year was the right thing to do, and whether the U.S. still has credibility on these issues given the challenges that we're facing domestically. And I think the summit in the end really answered that question with a resounding yes. And we saw that by the fact that more than 100 heads of state actually participated in this summit, the fact that we saw 
a lot of robust commitments coming out of the United States, and we're starting to see some deliverables and specific commitments coming out of the other participants. And we really saw that in, ironically, the reaction of some other countries who were not invited to the summit. So China and Russia, for example, who could have kind of ignored this as a not very important event and, and gone about their business, really strongly reacted. China held their own mini version of a democracy summit. The Russian and Chinese ambassadors to the United States put out a joint op-ed arguing that, in fact, their countries are also democracies and they're just misunderstood by the international community. And so I think the symbolic value of the U.S. still having the, the moral authority and the power to convene on this topic was incredibly important. The other thing that was important coming out of the summit is its power to set an agenda. When the administration made the move to a virtual summit, and given the time constraints in the first year of office and an incredibly busy and challenging year, and with the Afghanistan crisis you know, interrupting in the late summer and fall, it became really clear that this summit wasn't going to be the there wasn't going to be time for the summit to really deliver concrete outcomes and and really robust deliverables from 100 countries so they pivoted to this kind of two-step process where this summit is a launching pad to a two-step conversation that will conclude a year from now with a second summit and they will bookend this kind of year of action and by doing it that way it allowed for what i hope will be a really robust year-long conversation about the challenges that democracies are facing and what we all can do to support it. So in that sense, I think the summit was a big success. So Agnieszka, thanks for being here. Following the summit, as Marty discussed, there's this year of action. Can you share with us what the year of action looks like from where you sit for the United States and how is the administration thinking about the year of action? Thank you, Dan. And, and also, it's just a, a real pleasure to be here with you and, and Marty and, of course, our listeners today. You know, the summit was indeed just a beginning. And as you said, what follows is likely much more than one year of action as democratic renewal and digital advancement need long-term cooperation, amidst, uh, particularly amidst the challenging global context. Let's consider this context here for a moment. You know, global uh, democracy and the state of global democracy in 2021 suggests that more than a quarter of the world's population lives in democratically backsliding countries. You know, authoritarian regimes are also growing, and over the last two years, the pandemic has justified uh, emergency repressive tactics in, in many places. In democratically elected governments, the pandemic has also made it easier to manipulate the media, restrict civil liberties, uh, minority rights, effectively weakening civil society. At the same time, you know, economic recovery has been uneven. Slowest in low-income countries, hardest in the poorest 20% of the population, clearly harder on women and also translated into around 100 million more people living in extreme poverty. It has also affected the future workforce. The World Bank, I believe, estimates that the number of children in learning poverty has increased by 50% in some of these places. Amidst all of this, there is a digital transformation ongoing that is permeating every sector uh, and really changing, I think, as, as, as um, Marty said, the way we access, learn, connect, and, and even create wealth. And it is an economy that is growing and, and doubling every, every 10 years or so. 
So it's kind of, while it's hard to predict exactly what this year of action will look like for the United States, it's important to put the ability of democratic institutions to respond to citizens' demands and needs at the heart of the policy agendas and to enable more inclusive and resilient prosperity. So during this year of action, Dan, we can also expect a lot more focus on digital by the United States. Digital technologies could, in fact, strengthen citizen participation, accountability, transparency, and democratic institutions. And of course, investments in connectivity could bring about education, health, and even other services for some of these underserved communities around the world while enabling businesses to grow. Importantly, investments in data and digital skills could prepare youth and citizens and women for the opportunities of this growing global digital economy and the wealth it's generating. I would say that such skills are also needed to shape important data and digital policies that are required for the open, interoperable, and secure uh, internet backbone that we're all hoping is built. It's also important to manage the inherent risks you know, associated with, with digital, digital authoritarianism, data colonialism, etc. So in sum, what I wanted to say here is democracies depend on informed, economically empowered, and included citizens capable of making sound choices and holding governments to account. So I think we will see significant and coordinated investment in digital to incentivize such policies, attract private sector investment, and, and focus on the skills of citizens that are needed right away. You know, one of the things I, I got exposed to the democracy rights and governance conversation more than 15 years ago when I was in the Bush administration at USAID. The digital dimension of this just was not really a thing 15 years ago. It was kind of out there was a little bit, but it was not really where most of the focus was. I would argue one of my deep thoughts after 1500 Zoom calls in the last two years, I have like several deep thoughts after my 1500 Zoom calls, and I think that's about the number I've done. One of them is, is that we've had more e-commerce, e-government, digital payments, and distance learning in the last hundred weeks than in the last hundred years. So Marty, how has the digital transformation affected the rights and liberties of vulnerable people, especially in countries with limited democratic experience? In any of you, how can digital technology enable democratization and inclusive economies going forward? It's a great question. And I I would say I agree with everything Agneska just said. You know, the digital transformation that we have seen is a real double-edged sword. You know, we think about it in our own lives during COVID, how invaluable technology has been to allow us to continue to work, to allow in some form kids to go to school, to allow us to get our food delivered and our essential goods delivered so that we can stay safely at home. But at the same time, that also, you know, technology doesn't exist without people on the back end supporting it. And so what we've also done is pass along our risk to others, often more vulnerable than us, who have to implement and, you know, take care of that work. So I think about the the DoorDash and the Uber Eats workers who go into grocery stores when we didn't want to. They're not on salary. They don't have health benefits. They take home a fraction of what we pay into those apps. 
Amazon employees who are working around the clock to deliver all those essential goods that we need to keep our lives running and our economies running, sometimes putting their lives at risk to do so. You know, they're not unionized. They don't have representation or worker voice in their organizations. So, you know, there are these situations where technology, that explosion of e-commerce and growth in technology in the workplace and in our lives has been an incredible benefit to us personally and as a society, but it's also had the unintended consequence of really reinforcing underlying inequalities that already exist. And I take a step back and I think about that in the global context where we see similar situations. Obviously, digital technology has led to dramatic improvements in access to health and access to education, public services, livelihoods. You know, we talk about mobile money, we talk about e-healthcare and online learning, and it's created these opportunities for employment where they did not exist before, including during the pandemic. But we also see, as Agneska said, those technologies being abused in countries with repressive regimes to crack down on activists and, and limit human rights. And, you know, the in the context of civil society activism and human rights defenders, technology has been an incredible benefit. We see activists using online platforms like Facebook using technologies that are secure, like WhatsApp, to help organize themselves and to help facilitate their work. And then we see the backlash of governments, you know, using those platforms to attack activists. We see an incredible rise of online attacks against civil society activists, especially women. And then we see governments exploiting technology like that from NSO group to hack into the WhatsApp accounts of journalists and civil society activists. We see the internet being used for e-commerce and for organizing, but then we see internet shutdowns when government doesn't like what the civil, what civil society is doing online. You know, we've seen more than 150 internet shutdowns across 29 countries, in some places going on for months or even years. In Nigeria, the government didn't like something that Twitter did and shut down Twitter for seven months. And you can imagine the economic impact as well as the social and human rights impacts of that shutdown as a platform that people rely on. I, the last thing I'll just say is uh, I like to also think about another case study of a country we've all been thinking about and working on a lot these last few months, which is Afghanistan. You know, we think about the Taliban coming back in power in Afghanistan 20 years on from uh, 2001. And we think about what's different 20 years ago to today. And the, one of those biggest changes is the technology that exists and the technology that can facilitate access to work and access to education by women who are facing restrictions, who you know can bank remotely, who can engage in uh, activism remotely. Civil society can communicate and organize. Information can get shared more easily and get out into the world more easily. So we have more understanding of what's happening on the ground because of that technology. At the same time, we see the Taliban exploiting those same platforms to put out their propaganda and to target activists for their work. So just recently, a number of journalists who had posted videos on YouTube got arrested. An academic who was accused of posting something on Twitter got arrested. So those nefarious governments are also using that technology to attack the very same activists who need that to do their work. So it's really a double-edged sword of both opportunity and also challenge that we need to tackle. Agnieszka, how do you see MCC's digital transformation efforts fitting into the summit's year of action agenda? And where does the summit leave us regarding gender equality and in particular with regards to the digital gender divide? 
I also really uh, like this image of the double-edged sword that Marty has shared with us here and, and the, the balancing act that is needed to try to empower and make sure that there is the ability by civil society to, to leverage these tools. I mean, for those of you who are not familiar with MCC, we are a United States government agency established in 2004 with a mandate of alleviating poverty through sustainable economic growth. It is through five-year grants that we work with the poorest countries in the world, but only those that are committed to, in fact, good governance, economic freedom, and investment in their people. We've successfully invested upwards of $14 billion in over 30 countries in a variety of sectors, transport, health, education, etc. So when it comes to digital, we also have a track record of making sector-specific investments in management systems and technologies that increase the efficiency of government agencies and government-owned utilities that support services to their citizens. We've also invested in small connectivity projects to address localized constraints. But importantly, we've developed novel approaches to address this human capital that is necessary in civil society among citizens and that is needed for partner country citizens to benefit from this digital revolution. And so I'd like to briefly outline four ways that digital and the summit's focus on democracy intersect with MCC's operations. I mean, first, this intersection is, is material to the selection process that I, I mentioned. MCC selects countries based on their performance against 20 eligibility criteria, including political rights, civil liberties, and control of corruption, all important elements of a summit's agenda. And those really kind of assess the health of countries' democracies. And as it turns out, performance on these indicators correlates statistically with data openness, with data use as facilitated by digital technology. This suggests that responsible digitalization and data used by governments, but also by its citizens, supports more transparent and citizen-serving country systems. I think that's really important. Next, digital is really pertinent to our principle of country ownership. At MCC, we, we rely on our partner countries to lead both the design and implementation of our investments, but these are increasingly complex investments that require the skills, the resources, and policies to engage with MCC fully on sophisticated data and digital systems that are part of these investments, as I mentioned. And again, you know, those are things like education management systems, geospatial systems to predict the effects, for instance, of climate change on some of the irrigation programs that we propose, but also on health systems that help countries navigate health crises, such as the one that we are currently going through. The third is with our commitment to gender and social inclusion and relates a bit to this discussion we've had about the gender divide. You know, digital transformation has touched every sector. And so it's important to touch on the differential access. You know, women in Africa are 14% less likely to own a mobile phone, for example, which is still the main way by which individuals connect to the internet. When it comes to skills and a world where 90% of the workforce by 2040 will require some amount of digital skills, women only currently represent 20% of those experts. They're also much less likely to access capital for their businesses. 
So all a very important consideration. And so finally, under this Biden-Harris administration leadership, in this year of action, we anticipate a greater focus on these strategic integrated investments to drive digital transformation, not only through infrastructure, but by advocating for open, interoperable digital economies, and crucially, by investing in digital skills. And since I mentioned data democratization, digital transformation, and inclusive empowerment are integral to MCC's mission, I feel like we fit right into the summit year of action. And since gender equality strengthens democracy, I also feel that this year of action for MCC is a real opportunity to focus on strengthening women's role in the digital economy as a lever really as a lever to affect this change. So both targets are needed to bridge this uh, digital divide. Excellent. Great. Okay, so Marty, what role does the United States have in shaping global digital development? The U.S. plays a huge role, and I think for two reasons. One is the uh, the role that we play in providing foreign assistance and in building emerging economies. And the other is the fact that we are the home country of a number of the largest technology companies in the world and that we have such an enormous technology sector and the role that those companies play in the global tech economy. So the U.S. is incredibly influential in this space, and so it was really important and I was really glad to see the role of tech play such a central part of the conversation at the summit for democracy. I think that this is an area the U.S. needs to be more invested in. We talk about digital literacy and Agneska referenced this and how important that is going to be going forward. Both the kind of basic digital literacy that we think about as a parallel to reading literacy, you know, all children need to have a a basic level of digital literacy and access to that technology to facilitate it. And our foreign assistance and our MCC programs and our other work, uh, U.S. government assistance can help with that. But then also those more advanced skills that enable people to have technology-driven jobs. You know, in Africa alone, the internet economy is expected to be something like an $180 billion piece of the economy by 2025. So the 100 million new young Africans who are going to be looking for jobs in the next 10 years are going to need those skills to be able to find jobs. And so we need to be focused on both the kind of basic digital literacy that enables people to participate in society and in their governance, as Agneska referenced earlier, but also the advanced skills to give them those digital jobs. And on the flip side, it was really important that the summit put a focus on the risks around technology and the role the U.S. can play in helping to address those challenges. So the export control initiative that the U.S. launched at the summit that will help encourage other governments to adopt some of the similar restrictions that we now have on the export of technology that can be used specifically to target journalists and civil society activists to surveil people um, and to target them for abuse um, is really important. And that needs to be internationalized so that there isn't easy access to those kinds of technologies by governments that would abuse them. It's great to see, you know, USAID now has a digital strategy that's really powerful that goes across all of its programs. The State Department is standing up a Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy and a Special Envoy for Critical and Emerging Technologies to help bring together the disparate parts of our foreign policy apparatus that work on this issue. And I think that's the one concern I have with all of this work around technology is that it is very siloed and there is a need, I think, across the U.S. government to kind of come together and have a holistic conversation 
conversation about what our digital policy is and what our digital strategy is, both on the opportunity side and on the challenge side. But I think the summit provides the kind of organizing function that will help the U.S. government hopefully start to do that over the next year. Great. Agnieszka, could you talk about how the MCC is working with other U.S. government agencies on these issues? So I mentioned earlier that digital development requires investments in infrastructure, that connectivity. We talked about data centers, systems, but also policies around the free data flow, privacy, interoperability, security, but also this inclusive human capital development from the simple to the complex. I couldn't agree more with, with Marty on that point. So these are significant needs which must be addressed by the full toolkit of the U.S. government agency. MCC is, of course, one member of the USG family, and our footprint is comparatively small, but significant. Our country relationship you know, lasts from eight to ten years, and in that process we're heavily engaged with partner country counterparts, enabling us to make an impact on the human capital because it is a long game, an important long game, but also on the policies in those countries that we work with. And so, for example, I could see MCC and other U.S. government agencies working together on improving the data and digital policies that help to to de-risk private investment and then to crowd in some of those private leading private sector companies that Marty also mentioned and help close important access as well as affordability and technological constraints. And it's something that that the United States can lead on. At the same time, others, you know, the DFC, USAID, USTDA, others, of course, can support as well closing those connectivity and affordability gaps. There is really a need to work together and coordinate our efforts. I think that's my biggest worry is how do we work closely and coordinate this? So first, we will need to determine the country-specific digital investment needs because there are some cross-cutting needs across all of those countries that are partners with us, but there are also lots of specifics and our partners in country need to be involved so that they feel like this work is also consistent with their development and digital priorities. So for this, I expect that we will build on and, and share an internal process we've developed that's an assessment that we conduct now upfront in early stages of the development of our programs and apply those to the newly selected partner countries. We will also leverage USAID's digital ecosystem country assessments, as well as, for example, the World Bank's digital economy diagnostics, again, to better understand the specific digital policies, infrastructure, and human capital constraints associated with the countries and our own investments. Next, and given our tested and successful approaches to developing local data and digital talent, I think this too is really an area and opportunity of greater focus and a collaboration with the broader U.S. government. Here I will note that between 2015 and uh, 2021, MCC worked very closely with PEPFAR, in fact, to see lasting systems change in Tanzania through the establishment of this country-based, locally-led data hub that is building data and digital skills. Fast forward to today, this investment has led to the establishment of an independent Tanzanian NGO, the Data Lab, and it's 
It's an NGO that is acting as a center of data and digital related activity. It's inclusively training thousands of Tanzanians in some of those complex skills, Marty, that you referred to, data literacy, but also machine learning, AI, the first uh, students in that are masters in data science in, in Tanzania, as well as digital entrepreneurship to create wealth from some of the data that travels on, on the digital highway. Equally important, uh, Dan, for collaboration with the broader U.S. government family is the upskilling of personnel within all levels of government in, in those countries and including in rural areas. So a concern that I have is that in those rural areas, in the subnational governments, where power in some cases is being devolved, those kinds of skills and access are lagging. So that is a really important area to invest on, and it could help to build the receptivity and support for strengthening data and digital policies in, in those countries. It's a space where commerce, USAID, USTDA, and Department of State could all contribute. And finally, and because I think this point cannot be sufficiently emphasized, you know, the 2021 Global Gender Gap Report suggests that women are, in fact, being left behind by the fourth industrial revolution. So collaboration is needed in this space. And so, for example, in Cote d'Ivoire, MCC, USAID and Microsoft are about to launch a program that will build data and digital skills amongst women-owned and women-led businesses. Only 20 percent of businesses registered in Cote d'Ivoire are led by women. So there's, again, that opportunity to affect change. In sum, interagency coordination and partnership will be critical to the success of, of the summit's agenda. Great. Well, look, I think this has been fantastic. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate both of you taking the time to join us today on, on my podcast. And uh, I look forward to following the progress of the year of action. And I hope that uh, we have a very successful uh follow-up in 12 months time. I understand they're going to reconvene in 12 months time. So this is great. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 